started. Father, thank you for this day you've granted to us and for the beauty of the morning. Thank you for bringing us out to your house to study your word. I pray that you would open hearts and minds and help us to see wondrous truths that you would tell us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're talking about the uh, doctrine of sanctification and really there's not really many slides on, well there's only one slide today, which is that one, but we're going to be spending our time in Romans 6 and 7 and basically doing a 20,000 foot overflight of Romans 6 and 7 and if possible we're going to start getting into Romans 8 a little bit and just wrapping up this whole concept of sanctification and what it's all about and the implications for us. Um, if you remember last week we talked about um, started out in Romans chapter 6 and uh, the three key phrases in Romans 6 or three key words in Romans 6 is no reckon and yield. Know something. There's some things you need to know as a Christian. And this is information. This is truth that God has given us. And then reckon takes it a step further. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to reckon it in the sense that, okay, there's implications for me. I mean, I have some general knowledge out there about something. I have some truth about something. But what does that mean to me? And, and the reckon part is where I take that general knowledge and I apply it to me. I apply it to my situation. All right, I personalize it. And then yield is the act whereby I yield myself to that truth. I allow myself to, um, to come underneath the teachings of that truth. And we started out in Romans 6, and we'll just quickly go through the first part here. Paul is now going to address some questions, going to address some um, we're going to call it some objections. He's pretending he's a lawyer and he's making a case and there's going to be some objections that people raise and he says I know what you're thinking. You're thinking these certain things. And one of the things he says I know after just telling you about justification, about the fact that we're standing um, righteous before God, we have no sin, we're not condemned, you're going to think okay great now that I'm not condemned, now that I've been freed from that now that I am saved and I don't have to worry about that that means I can do anything I want to do right it means I can live any way I want to live and Paul is saying no certainly not it doesn't mean you can live any way you want and one of the great objections that the reformers faced back in the 14 and 1500s from the established church of the day was this concept of forensic justification where they would say and the Catholic scholars would say wait a minute if you believe what you believe that means that once a person is justified they can go live any ways they want that means there is no deterrent to sin I mean you're telling people they can do anything they want to do and one of the great objections to the Reformation one of the things that Luther and Calvin and all of them had to slog through with the established church of the day was this misconception of what justification meant. Does justification mean that theoretically I can do anything and still go to heaven? Theoretically. theoretically. It doesn't mean practically I'm going to do that. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying how can you continue in sin that grace may abound? How can you do that? Shall you do that? No. And a lot of people say well wait a minute God's grace is really evidenced when he forgives sin. So if I do sin and he forgives me, that makes him look good. That's sort of a perverted way of looking at things. And Paul's saying, no, you can't do that. Don't you know that you were baptized, as many as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? What does it mean to be baptized into his death? It means I'm identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's what he's talking about here. This is a dry verse. There's no water here. This is a dry verse. It is dry in the sense that it is talking about my spiritual baptism. When Christ died, spiritually in a sense, I died with him because he took my sin up on the cross. He paid my sin debt. So when he died, he died for my sin. When he was buried, he was buried for my sin and when he rose again he established victory over sin 
And since I'm identified with him, that's what it's saying here in the next few verses, since I'm identified with Christ, I died to sin. Now, in what sense did I die to sin? Well, there's a couple of senses here. One, I died to the penalty, right? Does sin have any more penalty over me eternally? No. Because what is the wages of sin? Death. And in, con in eternal sense, it's spiritual death. So I will no longer ever die spiritually. I, I am not able to die spiritually. But sin also doesn't have power over me in the sense that its power is broken. Its mastery is broken. I don't have to do it because I have been dead to it. Right. Right. Now, that's a whole different subject, but water baptism is a picture of this. We use it as a picture of this, but this here is talking about spiritual baptism. Yeah. And that's a, that's a wonderful picture. That's a wonderful picture of what this verse is saying. But this verse is not teaching water baptism. This verse is teaching spiritual baptism. Yeah, we tack it on. Okay. Um, and this concept of identification is very important. I've been identified with Christ. I'm identified with him. In fact, in Corinthians it says, um, how can you who are joined to Christ join yourself to a harlot? If you're, if you're raised with Christ, if you're identified with him, how can you go out and sin? That doesn't make any... You're making Christ part of that sin? I mean, come on. We don't have to sin. And he's saying the mastery, the power of sin. We're dead to sin in the sense we're dead to its penalty. We're also dead in the sense we're dead to its mastery. We don't have to do it. Right, well, there's still consequences to sin that we pay. And in fact, he talks about that in the next section here. And we're going to get to all of those. I mean, this, this is why 6 and 7 really go together. Because Paul is establishing something that you would know. This is, this is truth to know. Know that you're, you're baptized with Christ. Know that you're identified with him. Know that you died, buried, and was resurrected with him. Now, because you know that, what do you need to do? You need to reckon that. Verse 11, so now you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Know that you're alive with him. So therefore, because of that, because you know that you're identified with Christ, you have to reckon the truth of that. And then you say, don't let sin, verse 12, reign in your mortal body to, to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. Now, the fact that he says don't let sin reign implies what? Well, it implies we're still sinners, but what else does it imply? You have a choice now. Before you were saved, did you have a choice? No. You didn't have a choice. Sin reigned. Sin was your master, but now you have a choice. And he says, don't let sin reign. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What's your members there? What's he, what do you think he's talking about, your members? Your body. Your body, your physical selves. So what are you to not do as a, as a Christian? You're not to yield your members. Now, there's some practical application of this. Practical application is you need to watch what you watch on TV, right? You need to watch what you read. You need to 
watch where you go. You need to watch your activities. You need to watch what you do in life. And if there are things that cause you to stumble and sin, you need to stay away from that. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't allow yourself to be drawn into that. You now have a choice. You don't have to do it. Okay, devil's advocate here. Um, what about, okay, when you said if you, you know, don't have Christ, in, if you're not saved, you can't, you can't not sin. What about the good moral person who chooses not to smoke because they know it's not good for them? It mm -hmm. might not have a thing to do with anything else, but they know it's for health. What about, you know, there are various what-abouts that I could yeah. do. So. Well, again, it goes back to why do they do that? Do they do that because it dishonors God or do they do that because they don't want lung cancer? Okay. So it's not that they can't make Or, you know, they say, well, I'm not going to engage in immorality because I don't want venereal disease or because it dishonors the Lord. Right. It goes back to motive. That's where motives come in. Yeah. That's where the whys come in. There are people that understand what we mean when we say that the unbeliever can't do anything but sin, understand that doesn't mean every activity they do is sinful. You understand that? But they cannot do the right thing for the right reason. That's, that's what we're trying to get at. They can do right things, but not for right reasons. Yeah, the only right reason is to honor the Lord. They have no relationship with the Lord. They may do something right in the sense of not killing somebody. But why did they not kill them? There's always a selfish reason. There's always a selfish motive. Right. Right. Well, they do do it for reasons that benefit them in the sense that if they don't do that, their, their conscience is not violated. They feel better about themselves. Well, that's right. You got it. Yeah, you're right. And, and that's, why it's a, that's why sanctification is so hard because it's really hard to do the right thing for the right reason. That's a tough thing to do. But we can do that now that we're saved. We're able to do that. Doesn't mean we always do that, but we're able to. Why is it that you don't speed a lot of times? Because you don't want to. Because you want to honor the Lord in your driving. No, you don't want to pay. Yeah, because there's a cop on the side of the road there, you know. So we all face that, don't we? Right. And there, there are some virtuous things in that. But do those ultimately honor the Lord? No, but I mean, right. if you make a mistake in trying to say you're doing it for selfish reasons, because there are probably people out there who do things for better civic reasons than we do. Yeah, I, there's, there's some truth that it, it's not a purely selfish motive. But I think underneath it, and what, what Paul's going to point out in Romans 8, is that if you're in the flesh, and who's in the flesh? Unbelievers. Unbelievers are in the flesh. And in Romans 8, the context, and we'll get, hopefully get to there, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. You may do right things, you may do your civic duty, whatever, but if you're apart from Christ, you cannot please God. You can't do that. Now, there are purer motives. Some people have purer motives than others. Some people say, I'm not going to speed because it's my civic duty to be safe. Another guy says, look, I've had five speeding tickets. I don't need another one. All right, so there's all different levels of why we don't do things. But ultimately, what Paul is saying is if you're outside of Christ, if you're outside of God, you have no relationship with God, you can't please God no matter what you do. Even if you're doing the law, you can't please him. Yeah. That's the Imago Dei that's there, the image of God, the conscience. 
And that's one of the things that Paul says in Romans 2. He says, you know, those that are moral, those that are civilized or whatever, show by the very fact of their conscience and the fact that they violate that conscience that there is a moral law out there and they're responsible for that. And they very show by that very thing. But Paul is saying here, sin should not have, in the verse, first 14 verses, sin should not have dominion over you. It should not reign over you because the power of sin is broken because of your identification with Christ. And because you're not under the law in the sense that the law's power over you has been broken. What was the law's power? Death, condemnation. That's been broken. So now that you're not under the law, but under grace, can you sin now? That's the second thing. Oh, I'm under grace now. I, I'm, I'm in the age of grace, so I can sin. It doesn't matter. Verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? No way. Why? Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. What's an axiomatic truth that he's talking about here? How do you know who's your master? How do you know that? Who do you serve? Who do you serve? Show me someone who serves sin, I'll show you someone who's probably not a believer. And what I mean by serving sin is that is their master. They do anything that it tells them to do. They are bound over to that. And Paul brings in another thing. We have switched masters. Because of our identification with Christ, we as believers have switched masters. We're no longer under the mastery of sin. We're under the mastery of Christ. We don't have to do what the old master is telling us to do. We don't have to obey it. I think there's a couple... You ever, I've run into a few Christians, or so-called Christians, that have said, look, you know, I know this is a problem in my life, but you know, God's working on me, and someday it'll, it'll work its way out. They fall into this category. But I think another way that we do is I think sometimes practically we fall into this. It's not that we wake up one day and say, oh, I can sin and it doesn't matter. But I think there's a practical aspect in which if we know that there's like an issue in our lives and we're not dealing with it, we're sort of practically yeah. acting this way. Even though we're not sitting up thinking that, yeah. practically, we're living that way, right? I mean, it, we're acting as though sin is our message. If we know, you know, if I'm a man and I know I have a problem with a, an, uh, pornography and I'm not dealing with it and I'm not actively trying to kill that and, you know, yielding my members as instruments of righteousness, 
practically I'm falling into this. Practically I'm saying, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm just going to struggle with this the rest of my life, I guess. I'm just, but I'm going to heaven anyways. Yeah. Right. Right. And if you're not, ex yeah, if you're exposing yourself to that and you're not actively pursuing holiness practically, in a sense, you're falling into this trap. Yeah. Well, God will give me because I'm, you know, I'm really doing a good thing here. You just, I, I can see it so easily. Sin, sin is deceitful. It makes you think you're doing the right thing when all the way along you're doing the wrong thing. It's very good at that. And, and Paul is just saying here, look, the mastery of sin is broken. You, don't, you have to re realize that you're identified with Christ, and then you have to yield your members. And that's something that you have to do. And it's different for all of us. We all have different weaknesses. We all have those things that we need to avoid in our lives. And we need to say, oh, well, I have a weakness in that area, so I need to avoid that. I need to stay. If you have a problem with alcohol, don't live by the bar. You know, and don't go with your friends to the bar to witness to them. You know, just, it's common sense kind of things. But how many of us just don't think about that? You know, and that's what Paul is saying here, yeah. Yeah. Paul really is, yeah, yeah, and that, that's, that's a good point. It's not, Paul's not giving this so that we can go around and, you know, do a little bit of spiritual measurement of other people. It's for ourselves. He's talking to us, you know, he, he's talking about you. You reckon yourselves dead to sin. We do. Oh yeah, we do. Spiritual fruit, you look at spiritual fruit and you look at your love for the Lord. You know? And I'm finding as I get older in my Christian life, more of the things I do, I do because I want to honor the Lord, not because there's some penalty. Like Samuel was saying, I grew up in a legalistic church too. And it's not, not because there's some penalty or because God's got some massive scorecard up, up in heaven and he's checking off my actions all day long. But I love him and I want to do the, and it's growth. And, you know, we're, 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 this is what we need to head towards, is what Paul is saying here. You don't need to sin. Don't yield your members of sin. If you do, it's because axiomatically you, you're a slave to whoever you yield yourself to obey. You don't need to do that. But thanks, and that's what it says here, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to what you were committed. You used to be slaves to sin. Who's he talking to here? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. You used to be a slave to sin. Now what are you? Slave to Christ. You used to be a slave to sin. Now you're a slave of Christ. So act like it. That's what he's saying. You're a slave to Christ. Act like it. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. In what sense have you become free from sin? You become freed from the master of sin, and now you're a slave to who? Christ. Christ. You're free from that old master. He has no longer any reign in you. And Paul is speaking in, in terms that everybody who read this passage would understand because they knew what slaves were in those days. They recognized it. 
When you were a slave, your job was to please one person, not 25. And if you were a slave to person A, and he sold you to person B, you're now person B's slave, and you no longer did anything person A would say. They understood this metaphor. We don't as well. But they understood, hey, you're a master to the one who is your, you're a slave to the one who is your master. He says, I speak, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. What's your members, your body? Once you, your whole self, your whole drive in life was to do what? To please yourself, to do what you wanted to do. Number one, now you're no longer a slave to that. What are you? You're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to Christ. You, you got a new master now. And you're freed from that old master. You're freed from the mastery of sin. So now, you're free to serve Christ. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What's he saying? Well, huh? You got two masters. If I'm a master to person A, master A... I'm free from Master B, right? If I'm a slave to Master B, I'm free from Master A. So if I'm a slave to sin, I am free from righteousness. If I'm a slave to righteousness, I am free from sin. That's what he's saying. All of us have a master. Or free from the master of sin. Right. Right. You know, so people really need to just understand, you know, the context and understand, okay, I, I am a slave to Christ, but I am the main relationship and love and intimacy and go deeper with him, to love him, so it can be poured out of me. Right. The real metaphor here is that think of yourself as a slave to sin, and all sin does is it's, it's an onerous master. And ultimately that's going to lead to death. And what Christ has done is he's come along and he's paid the price to release us from the mastery of sin. And he, he bought us. That's redemption. That's one of the other rich pictures, redemption. And now that I'm redeemed, Christ says, okay, you're free to serve me. You're no longer under the mastery of sin. But he doesn't sit there with a massive board and whip and beat us on the head, Right? to do things, does he? Does Christ beat you on the head? Well, I mean, there, there are times, metaphorically, when, when there is discipline. There, you're right. But, but, but the motivation of Christ, Christ... God did not save us to, to bring us under onerous bondage. Rather, he's freed us to do what? Have a relationship with him. He calls us friends. That is mind-blowing to me. That I am his friend. Now, am I his slave? Well, yeah, there's a sense in which, yes, I am. But it's, I'm, I serve a master who is not a master who is a tyrant. It's a master who loves me and wants the best for me. And when there is a command, it's not because he has just some ego trip to, to work through on, but because he knows it's the best for me. And he wants a relationship with me. It's a different kind of master. Marshall, you're... It's sad in our culture. Not that it changes the definition of what sin is through God's definition. But in our culture, to bring this, these verses to unbelievers, the natural question is, what is sin? Because it strays so far into our founding fathers as what sin was in our country built on. Mm -hmm. Right. You understand what he's saying here. You're a master to one person. 
all right, or a slave. I mean, slave woman. It's, I'll use an example. When I married Donna, I became her slave, in a sense. <laughs> you like that, don't you? <laughs> she likes that. <laughs> but I became her slave, and I was freed from what? Any other woman, right? Supposedly, that's, you know, you, you marry one person, you're free from other women, right? And it's not that she's a means master to me or anything like that, but I love her, and I, I want to, to please her, and I want to be a good husband to her. And, and it's when, when we come to Christ, it's not that we have a master who's you know, always stern, always you know, got the board and the whip out and ready to bonk us on the noggin, but someone who loves us, someone who wants the best for us who and not only that but he died to purchase us this is not a master of a, a burdensome master it's a master of love and when I love Christ I'm gonna want to obey it's gonna be driven from the heart and I don't have to serve the master of sin anymore I'm free from him for when you, but what fruit were you getting at the time, verse 21, from the things which, which you're now ashamed for the end of these things is death? What was the payday for your old master? What was the payment in the end? You were a slave to get something. You were going to earn something. What was it? Freedom. No? That's it. Death. 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 Yeah. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's to end eternal life. What's the payday for our new master? Eternal life. Sanctification, holiness, and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've all memorized that verse. What's the context? The context is when I'm a slave to sin, what's my ultimate payday? Death. When I'm a slave of righteousness, what's my ultimate payday? Holiness and eternal life. Which one do you want to be master to? Which one do you want to have as your master? got to get over that unfortunately yeah. because you've got two masters I've got a master here that's a burdensome master yeah. am I if I'm his I'm going to be a servant to, slave to one of them yeah. and this master is going to be a onerous master he, he promises me freedom but at the end of it I get hell and I get damnation and I get death yeah. this master went out and died for me he can show me the nail prints in his hands he paid the price to redeem me and he bought me and he said, now that you're my slave, love me. Yeah. Which one do you want to pay? There's, you have to get the difference, too. I agree with what Sammy's saying. The difference between a slave, even in what our context is, makes it erroneous, and a bond slave. Or a bond That's right. Yeah, because the bond servant says, because I love my master so much, I choose 
Right. Right. Yeah. God, God is a master that is not a burdensome master. He's a loving father. And, and, and we got to get that picture straight. Chapter 7, we got to get through chapter 7. I promise you I'd do that. Um, Paul then talks about another axiomatic truth. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. What law? The law of Moses. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So another axiomatic truth is what are law, laws are binding on the living or the dead? The living, right? And he uses an axiomatic truth here. He's not talking about marriage and divorce. This is not where you go to learn about marriage and divorce. It's an illustration, all right? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. It could be a man or a woman. He just uses a, a common example. A, a woman who is married to a man is bound to that, her husband, as long as he is alive, right? Till death do us part. Axiomatic truth. But if her husband dies, she is free from that marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. What's it saying? Axiomatic truth. As long as the husband is alive, she is bound to the husband. If the husband dies, she's free from that law. And then she can marry another person lawfully, right? Because her husband is dead. Axiomatic truth. Likewise, my brethren, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, what is he saying here? Well, we were married to, bound to what? The law. We died. Guess what? We're no longer bound to the law, right? We're dead. We're no longer bound to that. And now that we've been raised in newness of life, who are we free to marry? Christ. We're free to marry another. We have been freed from the bondage of the law. He's just using illustrations here. We're freed from the bondage of the law, and now we're free to marry someone else, to have a new relationship with who? Christ. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were working our members to bear fruit for death. While, while you were bound to sin, the passions within you led to what? Death. It worked towards death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law was a onerous, burdensome master. What did it tell us? Do, 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 do. I was a slave to that. And without Christ, that was the only thing I had from God, right? The do, do, do. But now that I died with Christ, I am freed from the strictures, the strictures of the law, and I am free to love another person. That's where the love part comes in. Now he's talking about the law. First ch chapter 6 is about sin. Now he's talking about the law, the legal code. Am I under the legal code? Am I under the legal burdensome code of the law which no one can keep? No, I'm not. Why? Because I have a relationship. And so that which is external has now moved to internal. So I love and I want to serve Christ from a heart of love. I'm free to love him. I'm no longer captive. I can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, the legal code. I no longer have to do that. 
because I'm freed. I've been freed from that, and now I have a relationship with Christ. So what shall we say is the law sin? Was the law bad? No, it wasn't, right? Law was not bad. The law is amoral. It just showed us how bad we were. And if there was no Christ, if there was no redemption, the only thing I have, the only rule I have to know how to, how to act with God is this law that I can't keep. And all it does is just produce more sin in me because the more I understand it, the worse I am. But I've been freed from that. I've been freed from the bondage of trying to make myself holy because I've died with Christ. My identity with Christ has freed me from the, the code and it's now given me a relationship. You follow what's going on here? Is the law sin? No, it's not. Yeah, and he fulfilled it all. It says, well, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. How do, how do I know what sin is? Well, the law tells me what it is, doesn't it? And he uses an example, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for, for, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law came along and says, thou shalt not covet. And then what do I find myself doing? Coveting. And in fact, the harder I try not to covet, the more I covet. And what he's saying, until the law came in, was the, and what it talks about dead there, you understand what dead means here? Dead means inoperative. It means ineffective. As long as there's no law that says thou shalt not covet, can I break it? No. I could not break speed limits 200 years ago. There were no automobiles. <coughs> but once an automobile came along and they created a law with speed limits, now I can break it. And what Paul is saying, until the law came along, we knew the, the law is, the, the sin is there because people died, but I didn't know what it was that God wanted of me until he came along and said, thou shalt not covet. And now what do I find myself doing? Covet, 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 covet. And he's just using this as an example. For I was alive, once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I love what Barry says to me often. He says, I was a better Christian before I was a Christian. <laughs> what happened when the law came, and I understood what the law was, what it, oh, I'm, I'm coveting, I am sinning, I, I mean, just... It just exacerbates it. And the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. The very commandment says, do this and you'll honor God, proved death because what? I couldn't keep it. I can't do it. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. How did it kill me? It killed me in the sense that I can't keep it. But, you know, what the law says is, keep this law or you're dead. You obey, disobey it in one spot, you're dead. And what happens? Well, we disobey it all over the place. So we're dead. It killed us. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. What's the problem? Me. The problem is not the law of God. The law of God is a holy law. The problem is I can't keep it. So where does the problem lie? With me. It's not the law. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin. Did the law bring death? No, the law exposed sin and sin is what brings death. You understand? It's not the law that brings death. It's the sin in me that brings death. The sin in me is exposed by what the law says. It says, here's God's standard. And I look at that and I say, I'm dead. I can't keep it. And it's not the law that's wrong, it's my failure that's wrong. It's the sin in me that is wrong. To Barry's comment, I can say too much knowledge is given, but it's required. And I can also say ignorance is bliss. Yet ignorance is bliss. 
It was sin, producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. What did the law do? It exposed sin for what it is and really magnified it to where it couldn't be missed. I mean, if God had not given us any laws, would you know that you were committing an act of sin? No. But once the law comes in, once God's standard is revealed, once he shows us what it is, we find we can't keep it. And some people say, well, it's, the problem is the law. The problem is it's an unfair law. No, it's not an unfair law. The problem is me. I can't keep it. So what do you do? Well, you've got to do one of two things. You can do what the Pharisees did, which is redefine the law to something they can keep and pat themselves on the back that they're keeping it. Or you can say, I'm done for. God, help me. And God said, okay, now you understand. Now, now you're in a spot where I can help you because you know where you're at. You know that you can't reach it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I am fleshy. This is the only word, time this word is used in the New Testament. I am fleshy. What does it mean that I am fleshy? I have a sinful flesh that I'm lugging around. It's drawing me down. It's, it's pulling me back. It's holding me down. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do that which I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What's he saying? I, I want to do the right thing. I, I, I want to honor the Lord. But what's keeping me from doing that? Well, I got this flesh. I got this principle of sin that is in my flesh that is drawing me back, that's holding me down, that's making me do the things I hate to do. I hate to do these things, but I do them because my flesh is pulling me back. It's holding me down. And he says... Uh, so now as longer I do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now that is not to say it's not my fault. That's not what Paul's trying to get at. Is sin your fault? Yeah, when you sin, you're responsible. What Paul is saying, what causes you to do the sin? It's your flesh. You can't say, well, you know, my flesh, I can't do anything about it, so I guess I'm just going to sin. And you give up. No, you can't do that. You're responsible for it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Where's your problem? Where's your fight? This is where your fight is. This is where your fight and sanctification is right here. It's your flesh. We want to do the right thing. We want to honor the Lord. We want to glorify Him. And our flesh holds us back. Is this the point at which the scripture says to work out our right. salvation Yeah. Your battle, your number one battle in sanctification is not the devil. He's bad. It's really not the world as bad as it is. It's you. It's your flesh. You get tired. You get cranky. You pop off. You get weak. You fall. It's our flesh. It's drawing us back. It's holding us down. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Why? Because it's the flesh that's holding me back. And Paul is saying, I see that a principle. In verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What is Paul saying? Here's what Paul's saying. As a believer, I have a desire to do what? Good. good. I have a desire. All of us in here are believers. We, deep down, we want to honor the Lord. We want to do the right thing. We want to please Him. So then why aren't we doing it? The flesh. The struggle with the flesh. The struggle with our fallenness. The struggle with our own weaknesses. But isn't that what really shows 
right. You have a struggle. Most people don't have a struggle. They don't struggle with sin. They just do it. Their struggle is getting caught or something else. But as a believer, we say, you know, I want to do the right thing. And when you lose your temper, you feel bad about it. When you, you know, say something wrong, you feel bad about it. Why do you feel bad about it? Because you have the spirit within you. You don't want to do those things. So I find there to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close to hand. What's the law there? It's a principle. This is the sin principle. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight. I want to do the right thing. I was a Christian. I want to honor the Lord. But why do I keep losing my temper? Why do I keep being lazy? Why do I keep uh, whatever it is that we do, coveting? Why do I keep doing that? It's because of the weakness of the flesh. And because it draws me, there's a, there's a sin principle that lies within my flesh. Not me. Understand what he's saying there. What are you? You are a new creation in Christ. But what do you have still resonant with you? Your fallenness. And you're not going to get rid of that until you die. You've got fallenness with you. For I delight, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. There's a law, there's a sin principle within me that's making me captive to the flesh. And he said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now people look at that and say, well, that couldn't be Paul talking about himself. That is Paul talking about himself. What's he saying? I want to do the right thing. I can't. It's not that I don't want to. I can't do it. Why can't I do it? Because I got this sin principle that's dragging me down. And I can't get rid of it. And I want to get rid of it. And I want to do what I should do. And I want to not do what I shouldn't do. And... I struggle with this, and who's going to deliver me from this? He's crying out. Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who delivers me from this principle of sin? The Holy Spirit. Christ in me. So then with my, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul says, my motives, my desires are to do the right thing, but my flesh draws me back. It makes me stumble. It makes me fall. But I want to do the right thing. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Christ does. And then he gets into verse chapter 8. Greatest chapter in the Bible. There's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned. There's no condemnation before God, right? Because the penalty's been paid. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Principle. What's this principle? What do we have in us that fights against the principle of sin in our flesh? What is that? The Holy Spirit. This is important. Can you, in and of yourself, gain victory over your flesh? No. You're going to lose. How do you gain victory over your flesh? You yield yourself to God and you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit who can control the flesh. The Holy Spirit is the only entity in the universe that can control your fallenness. You can't. And if you try to do it, you're going to fail miserably because you don't have the power to do it. Okay, the word condemned versus the word guilty was mixed up in my upbringing and my legalistic background whereby uh, it says... Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm on the right page here. Anyway, there is therefore now no condemnation, blah, blah, you know, blah, blah, but you know, the rest of it. And I was taught that when you sin, you are condemned, but they really meant when you sin, you feel guilty. Right. But because they had it mixed up, right. they therefore said, now you're not saved anymore, and you've got to get saved again. Right. And that, that's a misunderstanding. It's not that when I sin, God says, you did another one, I'm coming after you. He's got to love. His condemnation is correctly understood. Yeah, this condemnation is talking about eternal condemnation. It's not talking about temporal condemnation. <coughs> For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not do? 
couldn't make me righteous because of the weakness of what? My flesh. My flesh would not allow the law to do what the law could do because I am fallen. I can't do it. So how is it that I'm made right? Well, it's not by the law. What is it? By the Spirit. God did what the law couldn't do. And what did God do? God made me righteous. He gave me victory. The law can't do that. All the law can do is condemn me because my flesh will not allow me to do what the law says. I can't do it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What's the righteous commandment of the law? Do this and live. Can I do that with the law? No, I can't. But I've met the requirement of it. How? Christ did. You understand? What's the requirement of the law? The requirement of the law says, do all of this perfectly and you have a relationship with God. Well, I can't do that. My flesh can't do that. I'm sunk. But who could do that? Christ did. And because I'm identified with him, he did something I couldn't do myself, which is what? Keep it. So the law's requirement is fulfilled now in me. Not those who walk according to the flesh, but those who walk according to what? The Spirit. So who are those? Christians. Christians. The legal code. The, uh, versus the legal code of 616 yeah. that he did break because it was made up by right. the first. It wasn't God from Mount Zion. Yeah, what the law says is those who have a relationship with me, this is their character. And I look at that and say, I'm done for because I can't do it. So how is it can I have a relationship with God? Well, I can't do it by the law because I can't keep it. But God has done it through Christ. Christ who kept the law, I have a relationship with him now. I am not under condemnation. So the requirement of the law I can do, not because I can keep the law, but because somebody did it for me. You follow what's going on here? You're getting a tremendous amount of theology in one hour here. All right? You got to let this percolate on you. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the same things of the Spirit. Who are the people according to the flesh? Unbelievers. Yeah. Who are the people according to the Spirit? Believers. Right. All right. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it can't. So if you're in the flesh, can you submit yourself to the law of God? No, because your flesh is enmity against God. You can't do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who's in the flesh? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. You can't please God. You can't do it. The only way you can do it is through the person and work of Christ, through identification with Christ. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. How do you know you're in the Spirit? Well, you have the Spirit of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, are you a Christian? No. 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 You're not a believer. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The whole point there is, what gives us ultimate victory over our flesh? Christ. We are, we are resurrected. We're going to have a new body someday that the sin principle does not dwell in. And we're not going to have this flesh dragging us down all the time. We flew over this at 20,000 feet very quickly. But the key point to understand is that what is sanctification is to be made holy. How are you made holy? You're made holy because you have a new master. You no longer have to serve the master of sin. And Christ has given you his Holy Spirit, which is, enables you for the first time to do the right thing. He's given you holy aspirations. Where does that come from? Because of his Spirit that dwells in you. 
And you want to do the right thing. And it's God who does it all. It's not you. It's God who does it all. So how can you be sanctified? Don't yield yourselves members of your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Yield yourself to God. Walk in the Spirit and you will not obey the lust of the flesh. And how do you do that? You learn to do it. Day by day, hour by hour, you learn to do what the Scripture says. And you depend on Christ and the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to will and to do of His good favor. That's how you become sanctified. And it's a lifelong process and it'll be fully, fully finalized when you get glorified. But until then, it's an upward trend. Hopefully it's all upward for us. Yeah, Marshall, we're out of time. We're all a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. All right, well, we're out of time. Let's uh, close in prayer and start the doctrine of the church next week. Father, thank you for this day you've granted. And we went through a lot of information here, Father, and it's a little bit hard for it to sink into most of our minds. But I pray that you'd help us to ponder and meditate on these truths and to be men and women who are sanctified and holy. We serve a new master who loved us, who gave himself for us, who redeemed us from the curse of the law. Help us to serve you with a pure heart and to want to honor you. And we again thank you for this wonderful day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.